Thank you for listening to the Silver Club podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. Colin, we are back for episode number 33 of the Silver Club podcast. How's it going up there in Connecticut? Great, Steve. Uh, it would be, it's a, the springtime has been beautiful. I would love, it would, every day is a golf day around here. It could be. <laughs> well, I, I know our listeners can't see this, but you are, you're looking like a pretty good mountain man right now. I mean, I know you're probably uh, trying to keep the, the razor companies, uh, you know, out of business in a way, but uh, yeah, you're, you're got a, you got a pretty good beard there going. It's a terrible beard. It's a victory. (laughs) It's the best I can do. And I'm, I'm not growing a beard as much as I'm not shaving. (laughs) (laughs) I can't grow a beard. So I'm, I I live vicariously through everybody else. It looks like a, like a 16 year old's attempt at, uh, at something. So it's just, it's just no good. So I just, I keep the razor on it as much as I can, but uh, I know that, that you yourself, uh, I mean, this is really would have been postseason time for the NCAA golf scene, huh? I'm thinking about uh, college seniors, athletes of all sports across all divisions, more specifically D1 college golfers in my conference and elsewhere. This is it. This is when we would have hosted this Yale Spring Invitational last weekend. We'd be getting ready to leave for Ivy's on Thursday. Uh, one of the hardest, most difficult days of the year for me is always the Sunday after the Yale Spring Invitational. That's when I have to announce the the Ivy lineup and, and invariably leaving a, uh, a deserving kid off the sort of the, the list of the five who play. And and but it's also it's exhilarating. It's what the kids. It, this is the week that we live for. Uh, you know, it's, it's what course would the Ivies have been played on this year? Uh, uh, at Century in Purchase. Wow, great! I played U.S. Open qualifying there a few times. Uh, yeah, there's there's really no no dogs of golf courses in uh, Westchester County, New York. Didn't you have a really? Didn't you have a particularly low round there one time? I did at teacher? at some point before some college punk came in and shot sixty two. I did hold the. The course record there in the uh, Met PGA Championship, I shot a little 64 back in 2013 or 14, I think it was, when I was up there. That was that was a lot of fun. Had finished with four straight birdies, finished on the front nine, then birdied six, seven, eight, and nine to finish. So that was kind of cool. But yeah, Century, fantastic course. I mean, there's just so many great layouts uh, that are right next to each other there in Westchester County. But uh, yeah, we want to... We want to be out there playing, and I know you'll. We'll be back. Uh, we'll be back soon. I'm just. I'm holding out all sorts of hope. But uh, talking about hope a little bit, what, one thing that's actually given us a lot of hope recently uh, with the Outpost Club, with the Silver Club Golfing Society, we've put together a few really cool book uh, watching parties, if you will. We've had. Uh, well, we have. We have one, and we have one more upcoming this week. Uh, we had. A great author named Brett Sirgalis. He's a golf writer. Actually, uh, runs the hockey beat, really, in a way, uh, in the New York area. And uh, he lives in Long Island. Great player in his own right. Scratch player. We had him on recently and talked about his book, uh, Golf's Holy War. And that uh, that was pretty special as well. I know you were part of that. We enjoyed it. 
good for Brett. Smart kid. He wrote a he wrote an impressive book. He I, he, I don't think anyone has ever covered that subject matter before. Uh, so, you know, in such a way, and, and thematically, he uh, he tackled it, and it was how, very how, cool. how would you describe it though? How would you describe the book? Sure. He, I think, so he, there's golf, the duality of golf is that it's an art and a science and the, uh, the, in the 500 year history arc of the game, it has incrementally flowed from an art towards a science. And there needs to be those of us who believe that the game is an art, a martial art. Uh, that maybe need to re- reclaim some of it and, and stop letting all the quant nerds take turn this game into data data points. I I, I agree. I, I I definitely treat it more as an art for sure. I mean, maybe that's I don't know. Maybe it's just our age. I don't know, but I, I just think that that you get so wrapped up in numbers and you know if I'm on the 18th hold, I've got a shot that I've got to hit to a back left pin or a back right pin. Like there's no way I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be, you know, four degrees into out and two degrees club fit. Like it's all a, a feel and a reaction. I, I think there's a, there's a great place for it in the training portion. Do you have one for your team at Yale? Do you have a track man or a flight scope or some sort of launch monitor that you, you own for the team? We do. We do. And we love it. Um, you know, indoors in the winter, it's very useful. I'd say, you know, did Ben Hogan ever worry about his negative angle of attack? No. Uh, but did he hit down on the ball? He did. And so I think there's aspects of it that are useful. Can you get, can someone get lost in the data? Absolutely. Like, you know, I love the old school teachers, Bob Torrance, and these guys were, the idea was, you, you know, the, you 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 adjusted the ball position. You made you made tiny adjustments to your stance. You didn't worry about what the data told you. <laughs> well, what I, about you? I, I I'm definitely more on the art side. I I just put it. I just go back to my my feelings when I'm in the heat of competition and and what I'm going to go to and and it's going to be a strategy thought. It's going to be just some sort of basic. You know, I'm going to see it. And, and it, it, for me, it's more of an artistry for sure. And but, um, you know, I, I, I like the launch monitors. Don't get me wrong. I mean, but but I don't know. I, I think there's a there's a certain balance that you need to find. And I think some people overuse that balance, really. You know, they might use it 80, 90 percent of their teaching. And you know, I, I'm not a big believer in that. But uh, um that argument can go on a long time for sure. And, and we could sit here all day and do that. But uh, talking about this more upcoming book uh, watching party in a way, I guess we'll call it that with uh, esteemed author, Michael Bamberger, somebody, you know, well, uh, he's got a, a new book out. Talk to just talk us through that. So Michael Bamberger is an old time friend. Um, I remember uh, while I was in college, uh, a teammate of mine on the Yale golf team, suggested uh to the lynx land because this is pretty interesting the, the reason michael bamberg has my eternal street cred uh, has has eternal street cred in my mind is that he uh took his wife and he moved to europe in in the early 90s in order to caddy for yale golfer peter teravanian on the on the european tour and that was to the that was the book that he describes into the lynx land and that type of 
sacrifice was crazy for any type of golf writer. And it's one of my, it is a beautiful book and everyone should read it. And he's, and he's only gotten better with age and he's carrying the mantle of America's, you know, best golf writer. Uh, he, he essentially has the, the Herbert Warren wind award of being uh, the best, the best American golf writer. And he's come out with uh, this, this story about Tiger's return from most recent return that culminated in the masters. And uh, it's, uh, you know, he, I would give him, I would read anything he writes and I love his affection for the game. And he, he writes it, he writes about it with a conscience that's about, about what's in the best interest of the game always. And so, and he's super dialed in on sort of the history of the tour and pro golf and PGA tour golf, but he writes about it with a, with a, 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 a wonderful eye of, a perspective of it of being um, someone who grew up caddying and and has a humble background from the game and is uh, struggles struggles with the yips and and things like that. Like he's 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 such a honest and real golfer. He's a, he, he's a opinion, yipper. His huh? opinion is yes. Oh boy. Yes. Yeah. He writes about it in Men in Green. Okay. I'm gonna have and to. I'm gonna have to read that. One. Around on it. And earlier today, I just was speaking with him. And he was, he, he loved the, uh, the podcast. He loved the concept of my appearance on Lori Santos's podcast, mentioning how the best thing you can do for those of you out there who have a little too much uh, club head speed through the hitting area on the putting green, <laughs> that w w one of the best things you can do is acknowledge it and discuss it. And that might actually be part of the best uh, path to be, to be returning from it. Well, maybe it'll... It'll just go away the more you talk about it, and that would be uh, that'd be pretty cool. But uh, another thing that's pretty cool, uh, and it's always great chatting with you, Colin. But let's get to this podcast now. We've got this is really kind of that that time we're talking. This this college golf season should be coming to a crescendo at this point, and so this week we've got the great men's golf coach at University of Florida, my alma mater, Coach J.C. Deacon, a Canadian native. Uh, he's got some great stories. He's got some great players. Ricky Castillo, who you saw last year, paired with one of your players, uh, James Nicholas, in the USO, uh, U.S. Amateur excuse me, at Pinehurst. I had a chance to walk uh, a few holes. Uh, well, I watched uh, most of James's second round of qualifying, and he was paired with Ricky Castillo. And so I, I had a chance to, to, to walk and chat with J.C. Deacon, who I admire. You know, one thing I sh one one thing that um, I have empathy for him is when I took over twelve years ago. I took over for a legend, Dave Patterson, who had been coaching at Yale for thirty three years, and he took over for your coach, Buddy Alexander. Uh, Buddy, yeah, Buddy Alexander, U.S. Amateur champion, and it's never easy. And JC's doing a wonderful job, and he's a terrific. He he is a he is a he is a strong roster, uh, to say the least, and. Uh, he, he's a terrific coach. Uh, I enjoyed, I enjoyed chatting with him. Uh, well done. I, I, you know, the, the only thing I would say, Steve is it's, is, isn't it impossible for you to be completely impartial, uh, talking about the Gators program? <laughs> yeah. Kind of like you with, with your, uh, with your bulldogs kind of, but, uh, exactly. well, that's the beauty. Look, it's it, yeah. A lot of fond memories from, 
my time in Gainesville. But let's let's get to JC Deacon right now and enjoy this great podcast. And we'll look forward to chatting with you once more again real soon, Colin. You will, Steve. Thank you. All right, we have a wonderful guest today, head men's golf coach for the University of Florida. Welcome J.C. Deacon to the Silver Club Podcast. Steve, thanks for having me, man. Well, it's always special being that the University of Florida is my alma mater to have the current coach there. This is your sixth year that was abruptly stopped with all yeah. of the goings on right now. I just, I just want to jump right into it. Was there any warning when you heard that? It, there was there any talk about? Well, maybe we'll postpone for a little bit of the season, or was it, it was just immediately we're absolutely done. Well, I think I think it started building. Um, we started seeing the things come out of China, and um, the whispers started. And social media is just so powerful now. It seems like. Um, you, you learn stuff hourly and, uh, and then when the whole Rudy Gobert thing happened with the Utah jazz and the NBA, uh, suspended their season, I, that, that, I think it was a Tuesday night. I was lying on my couch and I'm like, Oh boy, this is, uh, this isn't good. I figured if an organization that big was shutting her down, then, uh, there was a pretty good chance we weren't going to play. Yeah. I gotta be, gotta be pretty bummed. Obviously we're all kind of in this holding pattern here. Have you have you caught up with your team recently? And what's you know because obviously that was an abrupt kind of halt, and everybody kind of go to their separate corners, if you will, right? Yeah, I think that's been the toughest part. Is everyone had to go home, so um, you know we just have a a structure and a and a setup to to really help our guys thrive uh, on and off the course, and they're out of that now, so. Uh, a lot of them are home with with friends and uh, girlfriends and, you know, which is which is great and has its advantages. But at the same time, uh, they're not on that schedule and structure that we have them in. So I'm trying to check up with them, um, trying not to be too overbearing. I'm sure uh, they've got, you know, there's it's got to be a, a bit of a time of doubt for our guys, too. So I feel for them. But uh, just checking in and, and making sure they're staying on the things they need to and trying to encourage them and, and just remind them that this, this is going to end at some point. We don't know when, but it's going to, and you know, you got to make sure you're ready to go when it does. What sort of things would they be doing on a day like this? Obviously you're, you're in the midst of, of getting ready uh, to play the, the SEC championships would, yeah. would have been coming up. Talk to us about really they've been done with school and the postseason really kicks in. Yeah. So like this week right now we'd be we're just leading into finals so the guys would still be uh you know either working out monday wednesday friday or tuesday thursday depending on patrick lewis our strength coach um so they're getting their their workouts in and taking care of their body and then they have school from uh kind of 8 30 to 11 30 or 12 30 um they get that done in the morning um you know breakfast lunch get get all the meals done and then they're at the golf course from kind of 1 30 till dark and this is such a great time of year in Florida because it stays stays light so late and uh, the weather is just perfect in April. So it's it's heaven for our guys. It's tons of golf. It's, you know, five, six, seven hours a day where they're playing with each other and training and you can really get into a rhythm of, of playing your best golf. But uh, yeah, it's a shame because it's, it's my favorite time of year. The SEC championship, the conference does a great job hosting at Sea Island. 
the format's incredible, so competitive. And I know, you know, every year it's our guys' favorite event. So uh, to miss that this year has been tough, but uh, you know, we got to be, got to be ready for whatever it is that's next. No doubt. No doubt. No, I've got to preface this by saying that you played for coach Dwayne Knight at UNLV in the early two thousands. You had, uh, you had some great teammates, uh, including Ryan Moore, who undoubtedly pushed you and the, the rest of your teammates. Uh, what sort of things did you learn back then? Or what uh, I'm really interested in more. You talked a little about just a moment ago about the workouts that you do. How does the workouts that you used to do at UNLV compare to what your strength and conditioning team has your, your players do right now? Ah, it's a great question because it, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it is, uh, it is different. We, uh, at UNLV coach Knight had us, uh, we were at the gym at five 30. Um, so as a 18, 19 year old waking up at four 45, four 50 to go to the gym for really the first time in my life, I had never really trained before I got to school. It was a bit of an eye opener, but we did a ton of cardio there. So the first 35, 40 minutes of our workouts at UNLV was cardio. Um, Keith Clevin, who is our, our main trainer, Keith was a big believer in that. And then uh, we did a lot of really lightweight, high rep exercises. Um, trained rotator cuff, shoulders, elbows, um, that kind of stuff. It was a lot more kind of injury prevention. And then later on in my career, uh, probably my junior and senior year, we got into Pilates, um, and some stuff like that. So, um, now for our guys, like I, I'm 38 now, um, 38, no 37. I'm aging myself here. I'm <laughs> yeah, don't, don't. I turned 38. Yeah. You'll be there I'm soon enough, but I feel like I'm in the best shape of my life. And it's because of our trainers here at Florida, Preston green, who oversees the men's basketball program. He, he's, uh, kind of, uh, the boss of the gym we're in and he's uh, Patrick Lewis's boss who runs our program and man, they do such a good job. Um, I'm in there probably five days a week with them. Uh, I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't think it was that big of a deal, but when you're preaching to your guys to stay in shape and take care of their bodies and eat right and do all the right things to try and become great professional golfers, it's hard if you're not doing it yourself. So it kind of kicked into me my second year as a head coach. I'm like, man, I got to set a better example. I got to be in the gym. I got to be doing, if not what these guys are doing, but more yeah. um, just to, just to kind of be a leader in, in that side of things. So I've really gotten into it. Um, I love it. I'm, I'm fighting my weight right now. It's been weird. I, I'm trying to get under 200 pounds and just hadn't been able to find the right recipe. But uh, we at, just getting back to your original question, we, we lift heavier at Florida now. Um, you look at, I think, Rory McIlroy, Brooks Kepka. Tiger's a little bit older, but Dustin Johnson. DJ's, you know, I, I don't know his training routine, but he looks like a little bit more natural. I think he could dunk in college and stuff like that. But right. um, these guys are really strong. They're, they, they can lift weight. They can deadlift. They can squat. They can do all those um, those functional movements that, that uh, you know, athletes can do. So that's how we're training our guys now. And um, it's paid off. Um, you know, I look at Ricky Castillo on our team now, who is trending, you know, as, as freshman of the year, player of the year, whatever it was going to be, there was a lot to be told, but, uh, he put on, I think he's put on 30 pounds this year, 25 pounds. Um, 
and he's hitting the ball so much further. <clears throat> Club face control so much better. Wow. Uh, his endurance is better. So it's just like it's paying off. And he didn't even, you know, no speed sticks training, no technical work. He just got longer from from getting stronger and heavier. And it's been been pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. I remember back when I played for the Gators in the uh, mid to late 90s, our workout was the guy would tell us to do lunges across the football field and back. And then we'd go, we'd do stadiums. We'd climb the stadium and go up. And that was, uh, that was the, how often did you guys do that? We probably went, uh, maybe two to three times a week, I guess. I remember doing yoga at like six in the morning. I don't know. That didn't, that didn't help me at all. And, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, you're right. You, You have to get in the gym. You see, Guys like Brooks Kepka benching 225, you know, on the Sunday morning before he goes out and wins the yeah. U.S. Open. I mean, it's it's the real deal. But uh, and you also talk about setting an example as a coach. Obviously, you have there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of kids and and young men and young players that that are coming up that you do want to set that great example for not only in the gym but on the golf course as well. And I've I've got to I've got to toot your horn a little bit. You've played some really, really great golf over your course of your career thus far. And you still, you still can, can flat out play. And, uh, you were the semifinalist in the U S amateur at Marion in 2005. You won the Florida open in 2017. Last year, you got to play in your very first PGA tour event in your native Canada. You're a you're an Ontario uh, Ontario native, and you finally got to qualify for the Canadian Open. What what was that like? And talk to us through maybe why you didn't qualify for that event back when you were playing more professionally. Yeah, um, well, I, I to answer the last part of your question there, um, well, I, my game has gotten so much better since I became a coach, and I think it's just having. Um, the chance to watch these great players. Um, I was around, you know, Kurt Kitayama and Derek Ernst, some guys who are playing at a really high level now at UNLV. And then since I got to uh, to Florida, you know, Sam Horsfield, Ali Tosti, Andy Zhang, Ricky Castillo now, uh, John Axelson, these guys are unbelievable players. And so you're just sitting there watching greatness every day and picking little things up. So I don't, I hardly ever practice, but watching them and, even even learning from the mistakes they make and how they're losing shots and trying to help the other guys, you, you learn from that and you get in situations on the course now. And I'm like, okay, I remember when, you know, Axelson did this. I don't want to make that same mistake and I don't do it. So I think it's my golf IQs probably got a lot better, but uh, <clears throat> I was, to be honest, I was so angry last May. We, uh, we didn't play very well at NCAA regionals and failed to make the national championship, which is uh, just unacceptable at Florida. And um, <clears throat> kind of wanted to show my guys that it wasn't that hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, so they had a, had a pre-qualifier up in Canada and went and played pretty good in that and got into the Monday. And then I woke up for the Monday qualifier and it was blowing, I mean, 30 miles an hour. And I just said, perfect. Um, I, I can't, I don't think I can beat those guys on a regular basis, but a really bad day where, um, it was cold and windy and attitude's going to be a big, important part of it. I knew I could do that and, uh, played really solid, um, made a birdie on 15. I remember and got it back to, I think one under and shot 71 and 
hung on for the last spot in, in those crap conditions. And so it was kind of a celebration that night when I made it. But I remember I woke up Tuesday morning and I'm like, oh, God, what what did I get myself into? Here? <laughs> so standing on the first tee Thursday morning, playing your first tour event, what were the nerves like? Well, it was a, a funny story because I was down in the locker room and um, Rory comes out of the the stall and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Rory fan. And, uh, so I'm sitting there picking his brain and he was super nice. He's gotta be the nicest guy in the world. And, and just, he telling me a story or two. And literally I walk up the stairs and they're like on the tee from Northern Ireland, Rory Mac. I'm like, Oh my God, my stupid fandom of Rory almost made him miss his tea time. Um, but anyway, so that, uh, that was a, a funny moment to get it all started, but I uh, had, a, had a good warm-up and uh, actually actually felt pretty good. They, uh, they announced my name and I said I was just going to hit it hard and didn't really care where it went, and uh, I did so. And I, I did get off to a terrible start. I was, I was four over through eight holes and then um, shot three over for the two days. So uh, it was bad start, but I kind of kicked myself in the butt after the eighth hole and said, let's, let's go. This is just golf. And, uh, it was one of the best memories and, and experiences in my life. For do, sure. do you find that your coaching ability got even better because of that? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. It's a great question. Um, I, I think the empathy, um, that I need to have for my players really came back to me. I, I, I forgot how you feel and how nervous you can get and how uncomfortable you can be and how much self-doubt kicks in. Um, you know, all those things happened to me that week leading up to the tournament. And, uh, you know, I think as a coach, you get so comfortable because I don't really get nervous anymore. Um, you know, you're just watching and, and hoping you can help here and there, but you forget, you forget those nerves and you forget the feelings that, that golf brings out in you. And, it's such a hard game, I think, just because the doubt that it does create. And, uh, um, yeah, it, it helped with the empathy. And um, we needed it because we didn't play very well this fall either. And uh, it, I think that tournament helped me keep my patience a little bit. I knew this team was coming. You you, you were down with us. Uh, we had a great day with you there in January. And, that was and, fun. You know, you you saw how good they were. And I remember talking to you about it, you know, just saying, hey, it's I'm not, I'm not lying to myself here, right? You, you know, are they good? And I remember you kind of said, yeah, these, these guys can really play. And then, you know, they sure enough, they, they showed it here this spring. So yeah, they, they, they sure did. We'll, we'll get into, we'll get into a couple of those things here in a second, but I just, I want to kind of talk about your, your coaching philosophy really of, of how you, how you go about your day-to-day dealings with the players and even their parents recruiting that sort of thing obviously you learned a lot from being an assistant coach under Dwayne Knight at at the great program that UNLV is what what did you learn from Dwayne and and what sort of things have you used that uh that have worked over time from him and that you've picked up on your own yeah so um Dwayne Knight is is absolutely my second father uh he is uh just the salt of the earth. He is such a wonderful man. Uh, he treats everyone, uh, whether, you know, I hate, hate using a, a janitor, but you know, whatever position someone's in, or it's, uh, the CEO of the biggest, biggest casino in Las Vegas, Dwayne Knight's going to treat you the same way. And I always love that about him. He's just, he wakes up every day and he's got a good attitude and he's a good guy. And he demands out of his players that, uh, 
that you're on time, that you respect people and you do things the right way. And uh, I learned those things from him. And, uh, you know, I got to see it from another angle when I went and worked for him. Uh, and he just, he holds you uh, to, to accountable to being the best person you can be. And, and I, I love that about him. And I always wanted to bring that, um, you know, to my programs when I got a chance. And when I got this job, um, I, I don't think I really realized, you know, I don't think, you know, as an assistant, um, what it feels like when all the eyes are on you and, and you are the model for the program. And, and Dwayne did such a good job of that. Uh, he just, that's who he was every day. He, he loved the game and um, he wasn't afraid to, to hold his players to a really high standard. And, um, you know, I got the job at Florida at 31 years old and all of a sudden, you know, these guys are looking at me for reactions um, to everything that happens. You know, they're looking at me. Uh, we, we have a, you know, I'm not a good example of it today. You can see here, I, I hadn't shaved with this coronavirus, but uh, I don't think anybody's um, shaving right now. The, the, I know but the, we, the, the, know, razor, we, the razor right. companies are, are they're They're not doing so good either. Are they? <laughs> it's, it's killing them right now. I know I've, it's kind of a thing with a lot of people, but uh, you know, when, when we're up and going and we're representing the school on a daily basis, I have our guys shave. So all of a sudden, you know, I can't take a day off of doing the little things like that. So it's just, I, I can't ever be late. It's all those super little details, um, you know, that you can't preach to the guys if you're not willing to hold up that end. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for Coach Knight and, and the leadership example that he always provided for me. I, I still talk to him all the time. And, um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's just when you get, when you finally do get in in that seat as a head coach for the first time, it's, you know, you better be ready uh, to answer the bell and, and do everything that you're asking your players to do. You, you can't have it both ways. Well, that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. You know, certainly you're a, you're a, in a fishbowl really when you're, when you're yeah. the co of, of a program, especially like the university of Florida that's uh, that demands excellence like they do. And, yeah. and uh, you, you, well, you demand excellence also of your assistant coach. Now got to make, make note that Mark Leon, great player in his own right. He's been with you. This is his fourth season. Uh, I believe he's been with you. You guys played against each other at, in the quarterfinals of that 2005 U S amateur. And obviously you beat him to go to the semifinals um, t talk to us about, about how that, how that went down and, and how you guys kept in touch over time. And yeah, so Mark, uh, Mark grew up in Brampton, which is, uh, probably about 30 minutes from Toronto. So I knew him growing up forever. We played junior golf against each other and actually go back a year before to 2004. Uh, we got paired against each other in match play in the Canadian amateur and, uh, Mark, Mark still today, he thinks it was like a 15 footer. I remember it being a 35 footer that he made on the last hole at Shaughnessy golf club to beat me one up. Uh, he made this bomb on me, uh, unbelievable putt and got <laughs> me. So the next following year we get paired together at, at Marion and it was, um, you know, the competitor in me was like, wow, what a, what a chance to, uh, to pay him back for that. But, uh, I, you know, Mark and I have always been really close, so it wasn't, uh, you know, it was, it was tough almost playing your buddy. It really was. Uh, he's such a great guy and, and such a great player. And, um, but it was a great match. Uh, came right down to the end. I, I kind of had some short game heroics there on um, 16 and 17. And 
um, just was able to edge him out two and one. But uh, we, we ended up a year later traveling together on the Canadian tour and uh, he lived with us down for a winter in Florida. So we've been close for a long time and I've always really respected his game. And he's, he's a lot different than I am. He's um, you know, I'm, I'm probably too emotional at times and Mark's able to really keep things level headed. Uh, he's very thoughtful and uh, he's really good influence for the guys, especially at tournaments. He's uh, he's a really calm figure for our team and he's been, been a great asset for us. And uh, I know he's, he's established a, a lot of really great relationships with the guys and uh, it's been, it's been fantastic having him. Well, that's, that's great. Yeah. Certainly you've got to have, you have to hire to your weaknesses, right? I mean, I was a head professional for nine years at a, at a standalone couple standalone clubs up in New Jersey, New York, and the, the, everybody always preached higher to your weaknesses. And, uh, you know, you certainly wouldn't want to have the same strengths. That's what makes you ultimately stronger as a team. So uh, exactly. wonderful, wonderful uh, explanation there. Let's talk about your team. You've uh, you've 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 gone and had a little you know, there's been some ups and downs. And this year was just a, a, a really big you started climbing the mountain and then we had to, <laughs> we had to stop the climb. Uh, yeah. Talk to us about the, the team that you had in place this year and, and where you think they could have gone. Well, um, I really liked our team coming into the year. Uh, I knew that we had the best freshman in the country coming to play for us. Uh, I've known Ricky Castillo since he was 11 years old and I knew he was special. I 100% I had no doubt in my mind and uh, I knew we had a an ace and uh, he, he showed up uh, did, got left off the Walker Cup team that I think he thought he had earned a spot on I thought he had earned a spot on and I think that hurt him a little bit he you know kind of felt like he still had things to prove and he was pl- kind of playing for the wrong reason so he had a solid fall um, he finished in the top 25 in every event but nothing great uh, John Axelson was kind of our on-course leader in the fall. He finished second at Olympia Fields and uh, had another good finish at Isleworth. So John John was outstanding. Um, but really, the rest of the team was was terrible. Um, we just we got no <laughs> not no mincing play. not mincing words here. No, <laughs> no, and, and I they'll they'll be the they'll they'll back me up on that. We just we had our three, four, and five spots. They were finishing outside the top fifty a lot. Um, the scores weren't any good and, uh, we were kind of just hanging on by a thread, but, uh, some guys, we had some tough meetings after the fall season and some really honest meetings and guys took it personally. And, uh, you know, Blake Dyer is the first name that comes to mind. Uh, he got to work like first day in November when everyone else is taking their foot off the pedal and relaxing. Blake started working with his coach, Jeff Smith out in Las Vegas and put a plan together and. Uh, he finished top five at the um, New Year's uh, Invitational Amateur Tournament in the Orlando Am over Christmas and played two events, played really well, and then brought that right into qualifying. And he he was a huge difference because obviously Ricky turned it up a notch. Ricky uh, won our first two events. He won at the Seabest at TPC Sawgrass there, played unbelievable golf, got his uh, shot 65, bogey-free the final round to get his first college win, which tells you everything about Ricky right there. The kid's just a stud. Um, and then I think John finished second or third uh, to Ricky that week. But Blake was solid. You know, he was, I think he was 70, 70, 71. And that's what we needed. And that's, all of a sudden, yeah. 
you know, Ricky and John scores start counting when you get, get even par or under par scores in the three and four spot. Um, Fred Biondi shot 66 in the first round. We hadn't had anything like that in the fall. So we finished second there. Um, you know, if I'm being honest, when we came home to our home tournament, I knew these guys were going to roll. We were playing so good. Ricky was on one. John wanted to catch Ricky. Um, so Ricky goes out and shoots. I think he shot 63, 64 to finish and wins by eight. Um, <laughs> you know, John finishes top three again. Blake plays really solid. Chris Nito's playing better. Uh, we win the tournament by 18 shots. And, you know, after the event, I'm like, you know what? we're one of the best teams in the country and we've got the best player in the country. No one was playing the way Ricky was. Um, and we were rolling. Blake was starting to play good and the guys were starting to believe they were hungry and it was exciting. And, uh, we got a great test. Our next event was in Las Vegas about two weeks later, uh, Southern Highlands every year, one of the great golf courses in college golf. And, uh, the field was just, I mean, I think seven of the top 10, um and 13 or 14 of the top 25 it was a crazy field and we finished fourth and we didn't even play that good uh Ricky and John were solid um you know Blake I think finished right around 30th but we we finished fourth in an unbelievable field like that we were in the hunt and I'm telling you this team was building into something really special and I know it's easy for me to say that because we didn't get to play and and prove it but uh we were on to something and uh, these guys were, were feeling it. They were on the war path and believing in each other and the competition was high. And um, I, I, I just felt like it was going to end in some sort of championship one way or the other, but uh, that's, that's the irony of it all. And we'll have to uh, have to go out and prove it again next year. The, the team you had, and you talk about Ricky Castillo, I mean, we're talking about the second ranked men's amateur in the whole world in the yeah. wagger rankings he's number two right now and talk about uh well he and john axelson from denmark are among the 10 finalists for the haskins award and yeah. that will be announced when um i know voting's going on right now um so it's a, a neat award because coaches media uh players within the ncaa vote on it so i know voting's uh, going on now. Uh, I, I don't know when the, just, I think the timelines have all been kind of mixed up with what's going on. So I'm not sure when they're announcing it, but uh, boy, those two had some, some really good seasons and having two guys on that finalist list um, is that's, that's really impressive. And I think that's what was driving our team was, was just that internal competition every week, John wanted to beat Ricky so bad and Ricky wanted to beat John. And they're setting this bar so high. The rest of the guys are having to chase them. And it was, it was just a competitive um, monster building. So it was fun. It's like a, like a NASCAR race, everybody drafting off of each other and just yeah. pulling each other along. That's, uh, uh, that's, that's really cool that the internal competition certainly is, is what, what you love. Now talking about the makeup of your team this year. And, you know, I think about, I mean, the recruiting of players over time, it's, it's got to be one of your biggest challenges and one of the biggest things that ultimately is going to determine the, the success of the team. Uh, you've got five countries represented this year on your, on your roster, Denmark, China, France, Brazil, and obviously the United States. Um, yep. Talk to us about 
the the lengths that you go as a coach and and Mark and and how the recruiting process goes and and if there's any potential uh, great junior players out there that are listening to our podcast, what would you tell them? on what you might look for uh, to attend the University of Florida and play on such a great team? And, and what sort of things are you, are you looking for out of these players? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, and it's changed for me a lot. I've learned a ton. Um, you know, I've made my fair share of mistakes. Um, but we've, we've, we've had our successes too. I think, you know, you look at um, buddy, buddy Alexander, who is your coach, him and him and John Handrigan, who were here just before I got here, they, uh, had Sam Horsfield committed and, uh, I got to coach Sam for two years and he was, he was such a good example of what's successful at Florida. And I think, um, you know, it, you, you spent four years here and, um, it's, it's a big spotlight and, uh, there's a lot of people paying attention and a lot of people care about what the Gators do. And, uh, there's pressure that comes with that. And I think there's a certain type of kid that thrives in that scenario and maybe some that it makes them feel uncomfortable. And it's my job to find the kids that are going to be really comfortable in that situation and, and want to be under the spotlight and want to be under the gun and want to feel that heat and have those expectations. And uh, you look at Ricky and, and Axelson, these guys have uh, dreams to play at the highest level. And uh, these guys want to be the best player in the world, the, the guy. They want to be the next Rory. And uh, those are the guys that I think are really going to thrive uh, at the University of Florida. So it's, it's my job to go out there and find them. But uh, it, it's funny, you know, there's so many good players these days, but you do, you know, I always thought when I first got the job, just, let's just get the best, best player available and, and find that guy. And, but you got to find the right fit. Um, we, I think we ask a lot of our players culture wise and uh, we ask a lot of our players about how they're affecting their teammates. So you, you can't go out and, and ask everyone to do that. So it's Mark and I's job in the recruiting process to find out who our guys are, who's going to fit in what we ask out of our guys. And, and ultimately, you know, when they're, when they're on ESPN or the golf channel for um, you know, representing the university of Florida, hopefully trying to win these championships, who's, Who's going to be the man that wants to be there? Who's going to want the ball like MJ? So uh, I think we've found those guys. Um, I've, I've never been more excited about a team than I am for 2020. And I'm hoping this, this virus stuff for the world's sake, but uh, also for our, our small little world, I'm really hoping it clears up and gives this team a chance to uh, show what we can be. Yeah, and you just announced that you've got a, a pretty heady recruiting class coming in. I've... Uh, uh, what somebody ranked a golf week, maybe ranked it number two recruiting class coming in yeah. in the country. I, th- I got to think that's one of the hardest things to do, though, is try to predict, you know, somebody you're looking at as a sophomore, junior in high school. And, and how are they going to pan out four or five years down the road? Obviously, that's a that's a very difficult thing. You've also picked up uh, a player who is already tried and tested in collegiate competition. Giovanni Manzoni played the last couple of years for Lynn University, just announced that he'll be coming on board with you. Talk to us about all these players that you're going to be bringing on board in this new upcoming season. Should, should we uh, keep going here towards the fall? Yeah. So I, I, I kind of, I've given myself a little bit of forgiveness because I think if you look at the NFL, uh, the NBA, the NHL, all these, you know, I'm a huge hockey fan and the draft process there 
the, you know, teams just don't get it right all the time. And it's really hard to project um, who's going to be great at the next level. And uh, so it, it's been, it's been difficult, but I think I'm starting to get a better grasp on, on the guys who are going to thrive at Florida. And uh, we signed four uh, back in November that uh, that's the recruiting class you're referring to. I think they ranked Stanford ahead of ours, but uh, ah, who cares uh, so, about them? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Conrad. <laughs> That's all right. We love Conrad. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to give him a good battle. But uh, uh, Joe Pagden from, from Orlando, uh, he was born over in England. He's uh, he's just proven himself constantly at every level. Uh, you know, Ian Poulter has been a big supporter of his and um, Joe's a phenomenal competitor and he's been a Gator for a long time and committed to us when he was an eighth grader. And uh, he believed in, in what I was doing and what I was trying to build. And he means a lot to me because of that. He, he, he kind of had his pick of the litter back then and, and uh, picked us. And, and that meant a lot and kind of helped us get this thing going. And uh, we got Tyler Wilkes to come on board shortly after that. Tyler's from Tampa. And uh, Tyler comes from just an unbelievable family. He's got three sisters who are very high-level softball players and a mom and dad uh, who are two high school teachers who hold him to an extremely high standard on and off the course. And Tyler's Tyler's going to be a big time leader and example setter in our program for a long time. And um, Jonah Leach from Orlando uh, was the third guy we got in this class. Jonah's beautiful golf swing, tons of power. We're going to put some weight on his frame. And once he starts to fill out a little bit, this, this kid's going to really be a player. And and then last but not least, uh, we picked up Ryan Hart. And uh, Ryan's uh, Dudley Hart's son, who you know Dudley really well. Yep. Dudley was a Florida Gator uh, back in the early 90s. Uh, had Obviously, has had an unbelievable 30-year PGA Tour career. He got his card right out of school uh, after playing for Buddy and um, played on the tour forever. Never lost it. And that's uh, pretty hard to do. And uh, so we Dudley actually signed on as our volunteer assistant coach and so Ryan's been uh, been getting, you know, learning from him and spending his whole life with tour players. And he's he's another example. He's a really small kid. But he's got a great swing and plays at Calusa Pines. That's a phenomenal course down in Naples that has some really undulated fast greens. So his touch is amazing. And he's he's really he won a won a moonlight event a couple of weeks ago. And the kid's turning into a player late. And uh, and then, you know, I think uh, Giovanni's just a, a huge bonus for us. He's, he's played all over the world. He made a cut on the European tour last year and uh, he's, he can really play and it's going to be a really solid piece right in the middle of that lineup. And, um, but we're, we're so lucky. Florida is such a great school and, and has so much to offer these kids and uh, continues to be on the forefront of NCAA athletics, which, you know, attracts the kids and, and we can build these great teams. But uh, you know, as you know, talent on paper is one thing and uh, that's great and all, but, we got to, uh, hopefully we get the chance, but when we do, we got to go out there and prove that, uh, you know, we're as good as we think we are. Well, you, you've got such a, a young team. Come, I'm just looking at the, you know, the, right now, this year, you had a lot of freshmen on the team, and then you've got four more freshmen coming in. And so you're going to have a team really full of freshmen and sophomores next year, majority. Yeah. 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 Super young. Um, but, you know, it helps when you got a freshman that's, uh, you know, in the running for player of the year, uh, you know, so you take take the, the age away from it. The, these guys can really play. And um, all, all the other guys, John Dubois, Fred Biondi and Quinn DeBove were, were the freshmen that came in with Ricky. And, 
Um, they don't want him to run away with everything. So there's that competition at home that I know is driving these guys during this break. And I know it'll continue to drive them over the summer to keep getting better because they don't, they don't want Ricky getting all the, all the love and um, sitting there in that one spot lonely. They want to push him and, and try and knock him off his pedestal. So it's, it's just comp internal competition that we have right now is really going to help us the most. And I think all the guys understand it. We've clearly explained it to all of them in the recruiting process that no one's going to be given anything. You got to come in here and earn it. And all of the guys on our team right now that are coming back next year know that and they want to earn it. And that's pretty powerful. And I think that's the one thing that I'm most excited about is um, these guys don't want any gifts. They, they want to go out there and earn their spot. Yeah, no, no question about that. Now, talking about earning, earning spots and earning, I, I've, I read a story recently. The NCAA has come out within the last four or five months and talking about paying NCAA players and how do you think that might influence college golf? Obviously, it's not a, a revenue-generating sport like a football is. You're not putting 90,000 fans like you are in the, in the swamp you know, on the golf course, but talk about uh, how that potentially could influence golf or where, where is where is that yeah like well, I think it was the the hot button issue before uh this whole COVID pandemic came up um but name Im image and likeness is is a massive topic in the NCAA right now and I think um there's a lot of uncertainty just because uh some states have have these laws going in in 2023 or 24 and Florida happens to be 2021. So I, I don't think we all understand yet quite how it's going to fall. Um, I, I haven't even got there with my thought about how it could affect golf. Um, you know, and then obviously with, with the pandemic right now, you know, what's, what's this doing to the golf industry? Where are we going to be at? Um, you know, I just don't think anyone really knows. So it's, it's tough to tell. Um, I, I do get it in sports like football and basketball where, you know, you look back at, at a Florida who had a Tim Tebow and, you know, Tim was, Tim was one of the most popular athletes in the entire world. <laughs> yes, he was uh, when he was playing football here. And, you know, for him not to, not to, uh, to benefit from that, you, you know, you can understand it, but at the same time, I think if you look across the whole population of NCAA athletics, those situations are so few and far between there's, there's so many kids that you never heard of and probably never will hear of that are getting a great education and getting all that paid for. So there's a huge value out there that, that kids are receiving. And I think that sometimes get, gets lost in this. Um, you know, I think we've, we've sat down and looked at some of the numbers of, of what we um, invest into our players over a four year span when it comes to their scholarship, school, equipment, traveling tournaments everything that we pour into them astronomical it's, it's an astronomical number that's a perfect word to put on it and um i just don't think you know it's it's easy to say for these one you know when all these jerseys are being sold i, I get it but at the same time there's so many kids the vast majority of them that are getting such a great experience and having that paid for and, and man what a gift that, that is it, it, it certainly is i i Definitely was a beneficiary of a lot of that and scholarship money over time. And uh, I, I would not have been able to attend a University of Florida if it wasn't for a scholarship. And uh, it exactly. just exactly. And you, you look back on your time 
you know, you, you can tell me th those are probably four of the best years of your life. <laughs> yeah, when you're you're living off the off the university's dime in a lot of ways, and uh, they they certainly are the college golf, and it goes by very quickly. And before I let you go, though, and I appreciate all of your time that you've given us today, JC, talking a little bit about a young man named Theo Kelly. This is a really heartwarming story I read in preparation for our podcast today. Theo Kelly's a young man, I believe eight years old from Jacksonville. He's He was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And your team did something really special for Theo. Talk to us about what, what you and the team have done for this young man to enhance his life. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been amazing. It really has. Um, I, I, I've got to give credit to a really good friend of mine, and his name's Pete Fox. Uh, Pete had a a uh, 20 year battle with cancer and uh, passed away a few years ago. And uh, when I got here at the University of Florida, he was one of the first guys I met. He was a, a University of Florida alum and, and a golfer out at Pablo Creek, a great course up in Jacksonville. And I was lucky enough to be introduced to Pete through Bob Crouch. Um, Bob's son, AJ, played for, uh, for me my first two years and he was good friends with Pete. And I remember, um, I got paired with Pete. We took the team up to play Pablo Creek and I got paired with Pete and we played, uh, played 18 holes and, and loved it. And, and, uh, AJ's dad, Bob called me after the round and he said, uh, how was it today with Pete? I said, man, he's awesome guy, you know, two kids and a wife and good player. And I just had the best days, like the nicest guy in the world. He said, you know, did, did Pete tell you his story? I said, what are you talking about? Like, I know he works for Boston scientific and, um, you know, he's, you know, told me all about his family. He's like, no, did he tell you about the cancer? And I'm like, no, he didn't say a word. So I called Pete after this conversation. I said, Fox, how do we spend four and a half hours together? And you never told me that you've been fighting this battle with cancer. And he said, JC, you know, everyone's got their problems. He goes, that, that's something I've dealt with, but you know, you've got your issues. My friends have their issues. And I just thought that was one of the most amazing things that ever happened to me that you could ride in a cart for four and a half hours and the guy doesn't mention one negative thing or one pity party about the, the struggle that he's been through. And um, he was just someone immediately I wanted to be friends with and I wanted him to, to be a part of our program. And uh, we start, when he passed away, uh, we started a Pete Fox award that we give to one player on our team every year who exemplifies um, characteristics that Pete would believe in. Um, Pete's wife, Julie, has just been amazing and, and still a very good friend of mine. And um, so that grew into an event that Pete, Pete had in, in mind. And uh, we partnered with Golf Fights Cancer and try and raise a bunch of money. Jay Monahan from the PGA Tour has been a big part of it. And um, it's been, been really, really successful. We've, we've raised a ton of money the last three years. And um, so Golf Fights Cancer was trying to find a way to um, you know, to make a real impact, you know, kind of where Pete wanted to. And uh, we found Team Impact. And Team Impact is an organization that pairs, um, you know, youngsters that are going through a tough time, whether it's cancer or, or different disabilities, uh, they pair them up with a college athletics team. And if you look on their website, teamimpact.com, all over the US, there's great stories of, of this stuff happening. And we just were so lucky to get paired with Theo. Uh, Theo and his mom, Chase, have become a massive part of our team. Uh, Theo's up here all the time when he can. Uh, he's actually uh, going through a, a, a new chemo trial right now. So 
my daughter and I were up there seeing him in January, which was really cool and not cool, but it was, it was a life experience for me seeing an eight year old go and walk into the hospital and get a chemo treatment. And, um, he was just like Pete. He reminds me of Pete cause he didn't complain one time the whole day. He was so happy to see my daughter, Dylan and she, Dylan didn't know what was going on. So they played and she was dragging Theo out of the bed and it was, it was just an awesome day. And you learn, I think you learn how lucky you are being around Theo. He's uh, he's an eight year old that's going through some things that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. And uh, he's lost sight in his one eye already. And they're, they're fighting like heck to keep the eyesight in his other eye. And it's uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, getting emotional talking about him now just because he, he's so tough and, you know, you just, you wouldn't want anyone to go through what he's going through and he never complains about it. And uh, he's been a, a wonderful example for me to put around our team. Uh, our guys have really embraced him. Uh, Theo's really embraced our guys. I remember the first day he came up to Gainesville, he was there for three hours and he said two words. He was so shy. And then now he comes up and he's whacking the guys with clubs and calling them names. <laughs> and um, he's one of the guys now. And it's it's really neat to see that that change. And um, you know, our guys have been great. Robbie Eich, uh, you know, he he spends his own time and goes up to Jacksonville and spends time with Theo and his mom. And I remember he sent him a Christmas present that Theo was still playing with in, in February there. So it's it's been a great thing for us and our kids and and just a, a great dose of reality and perspective that, man, we are so lucky at the University of Florida to be chasing our dreams and doing this, you know, with a bunch of healthy guys. And it's not not reality for everyone else. So it's uh, we, we've been lucky. Theo's given us so much that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll never be able to pay back. Well, stories like that put it all into perspective. And it, certainly in times like these, especially, um, you need perspective. You need to understand what what is important in life, and you know it's it's family, it's health, it's all, all of those things that a lot of people take for granted. So, uh, great story to pass along. Uh, Got to thank you for your time today, J.C. Deacon, uh, in representing yourself so great. The University of Florida is so great. Uh, if any of our listeners want to. Find what the University of Florida Gators are up to. Where where can they find the teams goings on? And yeah, um, Twitter, Instagram, our, our social media department, Dennis, Dennis Black and, and Hannah, our SID, do a great job. Um, they're they're trying to keep up with the guys. But uh, when season's going on, um, Gator Men's Golf on Twitter and Instagram is is rocking, mm-hmm. and you can get every bit of information um, that you ever want. But uh, no, I, I, uh, I appreciate those words, Steve. You're, you know, our, our alumni in, in the history of our Gator golf program is, is pretty amazing. I've had, I've had a little time during this uh, break to, to do some research and, and look up all of your guys' accomplishments and, and the great table you set for us. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a huge thanks to you, too, because, um, you know, you came down in January earlier this year. I know you're not, you're not going to pump your own tires, but, uh, you spent your own money and, and got down there and spent a day with our guys and, and hung out and encouraged them. We weren't very good. And, and we were ranked, I think 40th or 50th in the country at the time. And, um, you wanted to come down and inspire them and be a part of it. And you left some great messages. I'll, I'll never forget. I think we played in a nine ball that day, me and yeah. you with yeah. seven of the guys. And, um, that's that's what makes my job so special is that you know you and Dudley and Steve Melnick and Gary Koch and all these great players um, and great guys want to be a part of it and make it special and our guys feel that and 
it's uh, it's a really a great place to be, and and I'm honored to uh, to be running it at at the moment. Very cool. Well, let's make that an annual thing. That'd be very cool. On my way down to the uh, PGA show in Orlando, very. You're, that was a ton of fun. Yeah, the uh, the invitation is uh, indefinite. There's no doubt about that. You're the man. All right. We'll be coming through Gainesville a lot more. Well, thank you so much, Coach J.C. Deacon, for being part of this Silver Club podcast and given all the great nuggets that you have given today. Uh, take care. Stay healthy, you and your family, and we'll see you on the flip side of this thing real soon. Go Gators, buddy. We'll see you soon. Go Gators. Cheers. A big thanks to Coach J.C. Deacon of the Florida Gators for giving us his time today on the Silver Club podcast and giving us all the insights of what's going on with his team, his future team, and everything that's going on in Gainesville, Florida. Thanks, J.C. And thank you, all of our listeners out there, for listening, downloading, subscribing. We really appreciate everything you've done to help build this podcast up over the last year plus. So thank you. Until next time, everybody, stay healthy, stay safe, and hope you're getting out there and hitting that little white ball around. We'll look forward to bringing you another Silver Club podcast real soon.